0: you know everything you need to know about the impacts and opportunities resulting from the FDA's new ASCA pilot program? If the answer is no, then join us on Tuesday at 4 p.m., our Device Talks Tuesday episode brought to you by Intertech. will answer these questions and more. Go to devicetalks.com to register. All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salami. Welcome to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We have a lot of learning going on today. First, we're going to hear from Dr. Nick West. He is Abbott's CMO and Divisional VP of Global Medical Affairs. At its vascular business, Sean Hooley, associate editor of Mass Device, will talk with Dr. West about their coronary imaging platform and its use of AI. Great conversation by Sean. Later on, I'll speak with Mike Carroll. He is the CEO and president of Atricure. I learned a lot about AFib. I'm sure you will as well. And I know you'll enjoy Mike Carroll's story. Plus, we'll hear from our friends at Flexin. Now, with all that said, let's go. Chris Newmarker has taken a few well-deserved days off, but uh, since the suits of 30 Rock say we need to trend younger, we decided we bring in some some younger talent, namely Sean Hooley, Associate Editor of Mass Device. Sean, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Talent is a very generous word there, but I'll take it.
0: <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna bring in the young folks sean you gotta talk what TikTok, what is it you young people are doing now snapdragon chat or something like
1: that oh yeah all the... I'm, I'm all over those don't you worry about that
0: plus you have your uh i don't have the uh the video up on on zoom but you have your your quirky soccer allegiance too right liverpool is that it
1: i do that there it is yeah.
0: <laughs> there's the flag yep. so uh how did you come to uh to love that team again
1: uh well believe it or not being uh Massachusetts born and raised the ownership group of the Red Sox 2010 uh, bought Liverpool. And uh, Mm. so I thought, well, if if ever there was a time to pick a team now is the one where there's a slight connection. So I went through about eight eight or nine years of, of nothing. And then uh, the past couple of years have been very good to me, so it's it's worked out in the long run.
0: And did you did you take to the streets with a torch when they announced
1: the Super League? That that was when uh, I thought maybe I shouldn't be telling people that the reason I got into this was because you know, <laughs> they, they did everybody dirty there. But
0: <laughs> the 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 passion behind that uh, inspired me to adopt a. Uh, <laughs> An athletic club of my own, the athletic club of Bilboa, Spain, where my, my people are from a long, long time ago. So ah, they, they
1: they only, they have a, a Basque players only rule, I believe. They, they, do they really? They only uh, want people from the Basque region to, to play for them. Something like that. Yeah.
0: I, I did not know that. Go go Lions. <laughs> I haven't really invested a lot of time into it, but I do follow them on Twitter. So so hopefully my, my passion will build. That's how it all starts. <laughs> All right well you have I'm sure quite ably put together this week's new markers newsmakers so uh, so let's take it from the top. What's number five on the on the big list Sean
1: number five is Google launching its first medical device or planning to launch its first medical device really yeah it's uh, it's an AI based uh, tool for identifying dermatologic issues basically you, Use your smartphone, smart device to take pictures of skin, nail, and hair related issues. And the AI interface has all sorts of references that is able to not, they made it very clear, it does not diagnose you, but it sort of points you in the right direction uh, and tells you what what may be wrong with you. And then you can kind of take it from there. But yeah, that's uh, Google's kind of oray into its own Its first medical device.
0: So basically, Google has developed an app that'll that'll help all those doctors who are eating at restaurants and strangers come up to them and ask, "Hey, does does this rash look weird to you?" or something like that. That's what the. (laughs)
1: that's that's very Larry David. I feel like (laughs) he's he's the only person that's doing that. But. (laughs) Uh,
0: Oh, I think we have I think uh, we have an app that'll also identify trees. So it sounds like it's along those lines. Well, that's very cool though. That'll be handy to have. Uh, I know. What I get all the time, which is poison ivy. But uh, yeah. if there's something stranger, then uh, clearly this will be helpful to have. All right. Well, it's great to have Google on there and, and be interesting to see where they go from here in the metal device field. What is number four on the big new markers newsmakers list?
1: Number four, we have another, uh, do, we, do we call them SPAC or SPAC, special purpose? We go that- with SPAC. In fact, we have sound, SPAC attack. SPAC attack. SPAC attack. SPAC attack. SPAC attack. Yeah, so a SPAC, uh, Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation, is potentially going to merge with Memic Innovative Surgery and bring the company public. It's a MedTech Acquisition Corp. Reportedly, uh, Bloomberg reported that Memic and MedTech Acquisition Corp are looking to merge uh, to bring Memic, which develops the Hominus FDA-approved robotic-assisted surgical device for performing transvaginal hysterectomies uh, looking to bring that company public. So yet another SPAC acquisition uh, and yet another robotic surgery company kind of moving forward too.
0: Yeah. Now we had uh, we had their chairman, Maurice Ferre, the, the the founder of Mako, one of the founders of Mako on the podcast about a month and a half ago talking about their efforts. So uh, they like Vicarious, who we've also had in the podcast before very early stage, but yeah, uh, Finding ways into the public markets for uh, through the SPAC, so it's going to be uh, with all the big players going in this space, and now these companies having some funding behind them. I assume both would be acquired by a larger a larger OEM at some point, but uh, be interesting to see where the where the story follows. All right, we're going to take a break from the New Markets Newsmakers list because this is where we play our first interview. It's usually our opening keynote interview, but we're going to do something a little differently. This time around, we're going to uh, going to dive a little deeper into some, some new technology and uh, our own – oh, it's Sean Hooley. Sean, you did this interview. Tell us a bit about uh, your conversation uh, with Nick West. I did
1: do this interview, and apologies in advance to anyone who likes his style along the lines of what Tom does versus what I, what I did here. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so it uh, came about – Uh, Last month, Abbott announced that it launched its AI-powered coronary imaging platform uh, in Europe uh, after it won CE mark approval. The Ultrion uh, software merges optical coherence tomography, OCT, uh, with artificial intelligence to enhance visualization and detect the severity of calcium-baked base blockages and measure vessel diameter uh, is what the company explained. And Dr. West will will go into further detail, but basically what they, you know, the goal is using near infrared light to offer high definition, precise imaging from within a blood vessel. Uh, And Dr. West explains kind of how this works, what the applications of it are and, and just how, you know, obviously everything's moving in the direction of, of artificial intelligence of AI. So it's uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely an interesting chat, and uh, he's uh, he, he was very engaging, very uh, very fun to talk with.
0: It was a great conversation, and, and 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 haha, about you know, not not having Tom do the interview, but I think it's great to have your perspective on this because you really do a good job of of getting him to talk about the AI and the applications, and you picked up on some some interesting yeah, stuff.
1: Plus, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the Liverpool banner behind me, that was the first thing he noticed. And prepare yourself, he, he is English. And the first thing he saw when he logged on to Zoom was the banner and joked that he couldn't actually talk to me because he is a supporter of Tottenham Hotspur. We, we got <laughs> past it. It might come up in the, uh, in the interview. I'm not sure if that was on the recording or not, but... <laughs>
0: It was. It was at the end. I was going to reference that. I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you remember that. Yeah, you, you really need to when you do these interviews. Here's a little tip. Let's let's try not to. You know, deeply offend <laughs> our guests with our uh, sports paraphernalia behind us. We're lucky. He uh, he's such a tolerant <laughs> very, man. Very very so. grateful,
1: and he promised to to chat again in a year. Or so
0: before we get into our opening conversation, I'd like to bring back Mike Huris, the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Flexan. Mike. We talked last week about what FlexN does. I understand you work well with OEMs through your execution strategy. Tell us a bit about it.
2: Um, it really is you know, three elements of our business. So the first is design, develop, and deliver. The design portion is, uh, from a commercial perspective, you know, we're picking the right partners where there is a strong need for our services. And it's really important up front to align those needs with our capabilities and most importantly, our experiences. And um, once we engage with uh, customers, we understand what their manufacturing needs, whether it's new product development or it's a manufacturing transfer. And that allows us to then get the rest of the organization and do a comprehensive overview of what that solution would look like. And especially in today's environment, given the, the stringent quality requirements, especially if you're dealing with a class three implantable component, as well as the ever-changing environment uh, within the regulatory space. So having that upfront engagement and really understanding the needs before you even get to the economics is absolutely critical. And if you do that really well, and you build those experiences, and you build that working relationship, because it is a working relationship as an extension of their organization, um, we found that to be really the the recipe for success for th- with us. Um, obviously, great communication, achieving timelines, achieving cost targets, uh, and making sure you know that service aspect of it is is really uh, addressed. You know that makes for a few really fruitful relationship because they're counting on us. Our customers are counting on us to really be an extension of their organization, as I mentioned, but to really deliver. And um, so if we do that well, there's certainly uh, more opportunity to grow within that relationship. And, and that's really been a successful model for us.
0: For more information, go to Flexan.com. That's F-L-E-X-A-N.com. All right. Well, let's hear from uh, Nick West. He's the Chief Medical Officer and Divisional Vice President of Global Medical Affairs at Abbott. Sean, you sort of opened up this interview just giving him the floor, so to speak. What was your opening question?
1: Yeah, I just wanted him to explain to me you know, the, the background of the technology and exactly what it does and just kind of give someone who does not have the MD at the end of his title <laughs> the lowdown on uh, just how it works and uh, help me kind of and potentially help the listener understand. Uh, exactly what it does.
3: What you've been hearing about is the new software version of our optical coherence tomography intracoronary imaging platform. Now, I'll just explain what that is for a minute. So when people have invasive coronary procedures, such as placement of coronary stents, which can be during a heart attack or for patients who have long-standing conditions like angina due to coronary artery narrowings, generally speaking, historically, it's been guided by x-ray only. And that's been fine. The problem is when you use x-rays only, you don't get lots of detailed information about the vessel. So technologies have been developed that can give the cardiologist the, an inside view of the coronary artery itself Prior to and after the stent has been deployed. And our optical coherence tomography system is one of those. It uses uh, near-infrared light to reflect off the structures in the vessel wall, to allow cardiologists precise measurements and get lots of information about the composition of these narrowings. And you may say, well, a narrowing's a narrowing, but of course, some of these narrowings are very hard calcified like limescale in, in a pipe or a kettle, and some of them are much softer, like blemange or sago pudding. So what what is new about our new software platform is that we already have this is available and it's used worldwide by cardiologists, but what we have done, we have created a completely new user interface and experience and, uh, and critically, we've made it much simpler. One of the major barriers to uptake is the complexity or at least the perceived complexity of this technology. So we've tried to make it accessible to even people who are not experts. And one of the key things uh, that I should probably mention is we've used the benefit of artificial intelligence to allow the software to take key measurements and detect key things like vessel calcification automatically. So there's no prior Uh, sort of training. You don't have to be eagle when I say say no prior training. You don't need quite as much expert training because the software will tell you not exactly what to do, but will give you a huge amount of information without expert inside knowledge, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, the the AI is obviously, you know, such a a crucial component of this and something that everyone is moving forward with. Um, So how does it kind of Deviate from the traditional methods, aside from obviously, you know, allowing for less intensive training, um, sure. and moving this area, um, uh, this imaging space forward.
3: Okay, so the, uh, so the, the the advantage of using these intracarotid imaging modalities, and not not everyone does it. If you look worldwide, certain geographies use it a lot, uh, use imaging a lot. That's both intravascular ultrasound, which is an ultrasound technology, or optical clearance tomography, the light-based one that I described that we at Abbott. Uh, uh, a manufacturer. Um, in Japan, about 90-95% of coronary procedures are guided by some form of intracoronary imaging. In Europe, the average is somewhere around 10, maybe 12%. In the US, it's, it's higher than that and it's rising. So this is a good thing for patients. You're going to say, why is it a good thing? Well, it's a good thing because it ena- enables cardiologists to be more precise. We want patients to get the right size of stent. They come in many sizes. We want the narrowings to be treated properly and we want the result to be excellent after the stent has gone in and you can't always get that information from the angiogram. But what's different about our platform and where the AI comes in is that, yes, there are various key features when you use these these technologies um, that people need to recognize. Now, one of the key ones when you're treating a coronary narrowing is this business of calcification. So the longer you have any disease process in the body, the body's natural response is to lay down calcium, like limescale. And of course, if you're treating a narrowing that has lots of limescale, it's very hard. Just blowing a balloon up, which is a standard precursor to a stent, may not be enough to modify that narrowing properly. So whilst an expert can detect and quantify with their, with their eyes and their brain the amount of calcification by sort of pattern recognition and training, people who've not been well-trained or not well-experienced may not pick up those cues. So the first thing we've done is, is, is integrate an algorithm taught by artificial intelligence that detects and quantifies calcification. Now, you may say, well, that's so what? What are you going to do differently? Well, there are, it, you kind of reach a decision point. Generally speaking, when you prepare a narrowing, it's a balloon. If there's a limited amount of calcification, however, you may go for a special kind of high pressure or what we call non-compliant balloon. If there's lots of narrowing, lots and lots of calcification in the narrowing, you may go for a a dedicated debulking strategy. And there are devices that spin at thousands of revs per minute covered in diamond chips that are used to debulk these very hard narrowings. So that's very important because... The stent won't deploy properly, it won't expand properly if you haven't prepared the lesion, the narrowing in the first place. So having that ability to detect the calcification and quantify it to alter your decision-making is absolutely key. The other thing it can do is it can detect the vessel size very accurately. Now you would think the vessel size is easy but you rely on what's called the external elastic lamina which is, if you like, it's like a rubber band in the vessel. And in your vessels, well I hope in your vessels and certainly in my vessels, there's not much difference between the exonelastic lamina and and the diameter of the inside tube. But in patients with coronary heart disease, what happens is the the inner layer of the vessel, what we call the intima, grows inwards and begins to narrow and occlude the actual artery. So detecting that exonelastic lamina to choose the right diameter of is critical. We're generally very bad at that. Our software will do it automatically. So I've talked in detail about two things, but... If I just summarize it holistically, it allows physicians much easier access to make the kind of decisions that we know impact patient outcomes. And we see this as really important. Innovation to drive improved outcomes and, and personalize patients' healthcare experiences.
1: Yeah, that was, you know, one of one of my questions I'd hope to ask was about the decision making. If you could just kind of explain exactly, you know, what the impact of this enhanced decision making is on the patient outcome how just how much it improves the patient outcome i don't know if you have data that backs it up comparatively speaking to you know other uh devices but
3: so ask me again in about a year's time a year and a half's time but i'll I'll talk around a bit more than that i joked slightly so uh recently we we embarked on a study called illumin 4 which is the fourth in a series of illumine trials examining the utility of oct uh, in, in patients undergoing stent procedures. And the Illumian 4 study compared people in a randomized fashion who had stents guided by optical coherence tomography, the previous um, uh, version without the AI, I would, I would note, against angiography, the standard, just the x-ray um, uh, guidance. Now, that study finished recruiting just at the end of last year and will report at the end of next year But we are pretty confident, given previous experience we have, Well, we know already that OCT will give you a better stent expansion. So stents are much more likely to be better expanded when they're guided by intravascular imaging, and in particular OCT. And we think that this will translate to reduced events in the future. It's been shown for other platforms. Intravascular ultrasound has been around a lot longer. It's much less user-friendly in many ways. But that has similar data, and we know that you get better stent expansion even than intravascular ultrasound, at least numerically, uh, in terms of the numbers, although it's not statistically significant. So we believe that the use of OCT will drive reduced events. And the reason for that really is is all around the expansion of the stent. You can put a stent in, but the stent is like a spring that goes in on a balloon. You blow the balloon up, it deploys the spring. But if you just use the angiogram, which is just a a squirt of dye and a two-dimensional representation on an X-ray, you're not going to get that granular information that you would get by actually going into the vessel with one of these imaging catheters and really seeing that this device is properly expanded and pushed against the, the vessel wall. And we, what we do know already from lots of studies in the past is the primary cause of stents failing, which includes either renarrowing or clotting off due to a, a blood clot, is under expansion. So, I don't have definitive trial evidence yet. There's a whole bunch of circumstantial evidence. And in fact, we have some real world evidence. So retrospective data looking at patients treated with OCT compared with angiography. We are confident that our randomized trial will show the same thing. So in terms of outcomes, we're reasonably confident, but that's in the post, so to speak. In terms of decision-making, We already have some good data from a project in the U.S. called the Light Lab Project, which is looking at real-world utilization of OCT and how it can impact both physician behavior, workflow in the labs, and the kind of expansion you get with a stand.
1: Great. Yeah, I look forward to a year from now when you can uh, share that. I'll (laughs) I'll hold you to it. Uh, Okay. So, yeah, in announcing uh, the system's launch in Europe – the company mentioned its use with the Dragonfly Opstar Imaging Catheter. So, I wondered if you could kind of explain the the tandem, the, the partnership between those devices, and how they work together uh, on the complex patient anatomies.
3: Sure. So, uh, as you say, we've recently uh, obtained CE Mark. And so, the European launch was literally uh, in, it's been lots of excitement. Uh, I, I'm speaking to you from the UK right now. Um, I'm going to see some cases later in the week and a lot of my uh, former colleagues are very excited about what they've, uh, what they've seen and how they've been able to interact with the software, the additional insights they've got. Whilst we have had an excellent imaging catheter before, as you say, the Dragonfly OpStar is the latest iteration in this regard. Now, there have been some um, criticisms around the previous catheter. <laughs> it's difficult to put a lot of technology in something that's very, very small that has to go to the coronary artery, to be fair. Um, but we have uh, exerted some meaningful change. Now, when we talk about complex coronary anatomy, it encompasses a wide variety of ills. It can talk about disease in multiple vessels, disease what, what we call bifurcations or branch points in the coronary anatomy, heavily calcified lesions that we've been talking about, lesions that's, that's a narrowing with, with, with a lot of disease over a long length. So all of these things make it trickier for these devices to navigate their way through the anatomy. And what we had feedback uh, about from the previous platform was that sometimes in these very complex anatomies, where the benefit of imaging is even greater than for straightforward uh, uh, narrowings that are treated, the device did not perform as well as people had hoped. So we have made some, um, some mechanical improvements to the catheter to enable it to get through some of these anatomies in a, in a better fashion. But critically, we've also made the imaging part of it, the lens and the light source is brighter. Now that's great because it provides nice, clear images for the clinician. And although it doesn't need it, it makes the AI that much easier to process. Clinicians will find it much easier to see things as well. So we think this is good as in you get a brighter picture. And if you've seen the images, you'll know that they're predominantly black and either uh, gold or as we call it platinum, which is kind of black and white or grey. but you'll get a much brighter image that you can see more clearly what's going on, coupled with the fact that the device is now much more deliverable and will cross these complex anatomies to deliver that maximum benefits to the patients
1: great, you know are there other applications in which you've been looking at using this imaging system using the a i um maybe within your department at Abbott, maybe outside of it uh but wherever you know I'm sure like i said a i is so popular now that it, it's got to be going everywhere, right?
3: Well, AI is a terrible buzz phrase. And I, always, I always, almost hate saying it because everyone just says, when they say, what are you doing? And you say AI. And it's kind of like one of these terms, you just kind of chuck it out. And it may, it's meant to say that we are forward looking. But um, we are using AI in lots of other places as well. We're using it to look at some of our clinical trial data. But looking specifically at this platform and where else we could use it, before I make any comment about that, I would say the FDA labeling for this device in the United States is for coronary use only. So I won't I just leave it at that, but I would not endorse its use anywhere else. Now, we know that it is is or has been used in other territories, and of course... As uh, a member of the vascular division of Abbott, the other bit of the blood vessels that we find is is quite a potentially interesting target might be the lower limb limb vessels. Uh, We know that people have published data on use of OCT uh, in the lower limb vessels. Um, We are particularly interested at the moment in managing what we call critical limb ischemia, which is disease in the arteries below the knees. It's also fair to say that people have published experiences using the OCT catheter in many other Vascular beds also. Um, there are some specific things about OCT which makes it probably more suitable for arteries with a relatively small diameter. For example, using an aorta, which is the main artery in the chest, which is centimeters in diameter, it would be very difficult to get good OCT images in that. But if you're in the two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe even eight millimeter space, those are the diameter; those are the kind of vessels that one could potentially image. And I think I would say to you again: you will need to watch this space. But I would again emphasize that the FDA labeling is for use in the coronaries only, and using it off that is a bit like skiing off piste.
1: Fair enough. All right. Yeah. Uh, that's you know the gist of the questions I had for you. I don't know if there's anything you you wanted to expand on or, or particularly wanted to mention.
3: No, I think that's. Uh, I think you know I I would just. <laughs> This is, to me, me, I mean, I was a practicing interventional cardiologist in, I mean, I've just told you I supported Tottenham Hotspur, but I was actually actually practicing in Cambridge. Um, But, uh, you know, we used a lot of OCT, and I kind of wish I'd had these features, because having grown up with the OCT platform and having to teach myself what I was seeing, um, having to deal with all these sort of upgraded menus, which eventually... and and no disservice to St. Jude and then Abbott after it became slightly cluttered I mean if you imagine if if you're flying a biplane there's not many switches in the cockpit of a biplane but there are lots of switches in the cockpit of a jumbo jet and the problem is that the front end of the OCT system had become a bit like a jumbo jet and if you started when it was a biplane you understood where everything was but if you came into it cold teaching colleagues on on the system that we used to have was very tricky because it had become very complex and counterintuitive and this this platform as it stands, it's going to enable the dissemination of this technology to kind of any end user, and that's the key. There are many barriers and resistances to using any new technology, and you know that in working in the innovation field. There's perceived ease of use and perceived benefit, and we've talked around some of these issues already. The perceived benefit bit is important, and that's where our clinical trial data comes in. Perceived ease of use is critical. If it's difficult and it's fiddly, people won't use it they may use it once they won't use it again so getting over that hurdle of it's not complex it's not just for experts and it will improve your patient outcomes is absolutely critical so you know if people latch onto the AI thing and want to be a part of that that's great if they like that concept it does, it does exert meaningful change and we have more features that we will develop in coming years
1: great well thank you so much and really appreciate all the information and yeah uh, you know Despite, uh, recent rivalry, uh, I wish Tottenham all the best for, for your sake.
3: <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. That's very kind. And the same for Liverpool,
1: obviously. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And, and like I said, hopefully a year from now, uh, we can catch up again.
3: Yeah, that'd be great. Nice to, nice to meet you, Sean.
0: All right, Sean. Well, that was terrific. Great. This was your debut interview, right? On, on the podcast you've been on as a co-host before, but, uh, is this the first conversation you've had?
1: I uh, believe so. Maybe uh, some snippets from previous interviews have been used before, but uh, never, never the whole, the whole shebang.
0: Excellent. Well, you'll see the uh, you'll see the pay raise in your next paycheck for sure. I better because <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, podcasters uh, we make all the, the big bucks. We sure do. So uh, great job though. Thank you for uh, thank you for for making those interviews, and we'll we'll continue to bring. Some of these, uh, again, these deeper dive looks at uh, some really cool medical device technology. But uh, now it's back to the, the grindstone, Sean. What's number three on the big New Markers Newsmakers list?
1: Number three, we have Teleflex selling some respiratory assets to Medline. Uh, Teleflex announced that it's going to sell a significant portion of its respiratory business to Medline Industries for $286 million. Uh, this is all part of a previously announced restructuring plan uh, during last month's uh, quarterly earnings report. Um, it's th- The product lines being divested include oxygen, aerosol therapy, active humidification, and non-invasive ventilation and incentive spirometers. Uh, they expect the acquisition to close in the third quarter of this year. And Teleflex is looking as part of the restructuring process to use some of the proceeds to pay down debt, uh, and support its growth strat- strategy.
0: Awesome. Great. Well, important news there. All right. Bring us into number two on the big NN.
1: Number two was written by, uh, our missing colleague, Chris Newmarker. Uh, the headline is, is renal denervation back as a high blood pressure treatment? And it comes on the back of Medtronic uh, reporting what it said is clinically significant and sustained blood pressure reduction among nearly 3000 people with uncontrolled hypertension that were treated with the company's simplicity renal denervation system. Basically uh, they reported these results at the 2021 Euro PCR annual meeting and um, a couple of other companies reported some positive data with renal denervation, and and it seems like uh, it's it's sort of on the rise as the, the treatment for high blood pressure.
0: That's great. Yeah, that's a story we're continuing to follow. Chris and I have talked about it before, the acquisition of Ardian by Medtronic back in 2011, and Ardian being one of those really early stage med tech companies that came came together, built around a, uh, some some early surgeries in and in a, in a thesis or a theory written in a paper, and they built a, a company and a therapeutic approach about it. So uh, it's exciting to see that it's uh, actually making progress, and uh, I hope we'll see regulatory approval in the uh, in the near future it'll be great great news for folks with uh, drug resistant hypertension so all right well bring us into the big number 1 on uh, New Newsmakers
1: number 1 we've already talked about this company it's not related to Dr. Nick West but Abbott won the CE mark for its Navitor Navitor uh, TAVI Tavi platform transcatheter aortic valve implantation system um for treating severe aortic stenosis in people who are at high or extreme surgical risk. Basically, uh, you know, the aortic valves are, are all the rage as we've known and covered on new newsmakers, plenty of times, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so this, this particular system, has what Abbott says is a unique design for preventing blood leaking around the valve. So there's a less invasive alternative to surgical aortic valve replacement. It features uh, Abbott's seal fabric cuff that works with the cardiac cycle to reduce or eliminate the backflow of blood. The company says it's the only self-expanding TAVI system with intraannular leaflets and large frame cells that are designed to improve access to critical coron- coronary arteries and facilitate future interventions to treat coron- coronary artery disease. And, uh, it's just another, you know, step forward in, in heart valves and all, all that. It's always a, a popular space.
0: Absolutely. No, I know. And I know Medtronic had some, uh, some news this week too, about their, uh, taver I know you were considering that for the list as well. Uh, so, uh, lots of, uh, Lots of movement in the uh, aortic valve replacement space. Definitely. Before we get into this keynote conversation, I want to let you know we dropped another episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. I got a chance to speak with Giovanni DiNapoli. He is the head of the gastrointestinal business unit at Medtronic. To hear what he has to say, go to devicetalks.com or find Medtronic Talks on any podcast platform. Well, Mike Carroll, welcome to the podcast.
4: Well, thanks for having me, Tom.
0: It's great to see you. And uh, we'd love to learn a little bit about our, our guests' backgrounds. More, most specifically, how they found their way into MedTech. And uh, reading your background, it seems like you uh, came into MedTech a bit uh, early in your career, but but not right from the start. What was uh, what was your transition into MedTech?
4: Yeah, my transition was I was actually in technology in general. I was with uh, in, in the kind of wireless and software space before. And sold that business. And one of my board members was on the board of a medical imaging company called Vital Images. And that was kind of the beginning of my move into healthcare. I used to say to myself, oh, yeah, those people in healthcare, they all say they're mission driven. And I I didn't understand it. I'm like, ah, you know, I'm not, what I'm doing is great too. And I could get really excited about it. And then I joined Vital Images and I realized, wow, now I understand what a, a true mission driven company is all about. One that really kind of focuses on patient care and Vital Images was that, and that was kind of my transition into it. I started out as a chief operating and financial officer at Vital Images, and then kind of progressed my career from there.
0: Uh, that's a great perspective, man. I do feel like sometimes we puff ourselves up a little bit and, and, and feel like we're, we're saving lives personally. But uh, uh, what is the difference to you between the two companies? What is it? Is just the the overall overarching knowledge that what you're doing is either going to or is getting people better, or is it something deeper than that?
4: I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, what I mean is that, yes, what you just described, what you're doing is helping people, um, and you're helping people get better and improve their lives, and, and that really becomes something that is in the DNA of most companies that are in the medical device space. But also, the people that you interact with are doing the same. So every day, you're talking to a physician, and you're always kind of uh, – working with them and when you work with these physicians they've just got great perspective on how to care for patients and improve lives and that doesn't exist if you're selling software per se. sure i'm making it go faster and that's really cool and it's super important for society but there is just a different kind of take to it um and it's been a lot of fun to be a part of it i'm really glad that the the community welcomed me and uh, been doing it now for almost 20 years
0: and you were president and CEO of Vital Images, or or did you become CEO later? I thought I heard you say you were CFO. Maybe I'm. I started
4: out um, in the financial and operations side of, of Vital Images, and then I became CEO and did that for three years before we sold the business to Toshiba, mm-hmm. and it basically became the medical imaging group within Toshiba that's now Canon. Um, and then I left shortly thereafter and came to Atricure.
0: And where did you go? You did you go directly from Vital Images to uh, to Atricure? Is that what you said? I did,
4: yeah. I mean, uh, we were, I mean, I had a period of time in between where I was trying to figure out what was going to be the next kind of journey of my life, and Atricure came call, and uh, I've been there ever since, um, almost over eight years now, and just love it.
0: Well, let's talk a bit about the company. What, what speak it, Speaking in the context of what drew you to Atricure, and then within that, answering that question, tell us what, what Atricure does.
4: So, um, what drew me to Atricure was, I got a phone call out of the blue from a friend saying, Hey, there's this company. um, I'd always been a part of publicly traded company. So uh, that is really focused on atrial fibrillation and my mom had atrial fibrillation. That's that's really kind of interesting. Um, And and the more I dove into it, the more I just got really excited about it. I had never, even though I'd been in healthcare for a little while, I'd never been through cardiac surgery or even into a procedure like that. Um, And I did a lot of research on kind of what atrial care is all about which was world-class, number one in its space relative to the products they made um, around atrial fibrillation. And that just got me really excited about kind of the the core bones of what it was about, too, was even as much as I loved my Images, Atricure was the most patient-focused business I'd ever been a part of. Everybody that you talked to was thinking about what is the actual impact on a patient Um, testimonials from patients and from the physicians would introduce you to that. And during my diligence, I just fell in love with the company and the people that I met there and nothing has been, it's been better than I expected.
0: What stage was the company when you joined in 2012? It had gone public, I believe in 2005, it had been founded, uh, I think, five years before that. So how far along was it in sales and, and development at that point?
4: It was about, it was kind of in the $60 million in revenue or so size at the time, about a $90 million uh, market cap um, from that's the financial kind of side of the business. But from a uh, product side, it was actually the first and only company to get approval already before I joined um, in the concomitant, which is when you're treating atrial fibrillation while you're also treating your valve or some other um, ailment like a a coronary bypass. And so they were the only ones in the world that actually got that approval. Everybody else in the space gave up, but Atricure had the best products in the area. Um, Medtronic has products in the area and then Atricure, and Atricure is the one that got the FDA approval um, through that trial. Um, And so that was one of the things that excited me is that they had this approval first and only in the space and on top of that, they also had a really rich pipeline, and they had a product for managing your left atrial appendage. And you're probably like, well, why does that matter? And it matters because in atrial fibrillation, your heart, it basically isn't beating smoothly.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And when your heart doesn't beat smoothly, the blood doesn't, it begins to pool. And the pooling of blood causes clots, clots cause stroke. So you've got about a five or six times more likely chance of having a stroke if you have AFib. Where those occur is typically in something called the left atrial appendage, which is on the side of your heart. And that little pouch, unfortunately, is where a lot of that blood pools. And they had a product that basically clipped that off. And it was, it's was it been a great product. It's our fastest growing product over the last eight years. And that product was just launching when I started.
0: So what? talk a bit about your, your, your pipeline. Are you exclusively focused on, on AFib? Really
4: good question. So we have been exclusively focused on AFib, but we kind of got into a tangential market. And you're probably going to say, well, it doesn't sound like tangential, but it is when I explain (laughs) it to you. We got into pain management. You're like, well, how does pain management, how is that really AFib? Well, one of the ways that you treat AFib surgically, and we're talking about the most complicated, difficult to treat patients with AFib. These are patients you talked earlier about the different stages of AFib. AFib is a lot like cancer, in that you've got early stage AFib, which is paroxysmal, middle stage, persistent, and then late stage, which is longstanding persistent. And we're really focused on that most complicated treat patient. When you do that, we used to have a procedure, and we still have one, where you go in through the ribs and you've got nerve endings there. And we thought, oh, great idea. Some doctors were using that to freeze the nerve. If you freeze the nerve, you deaden the pain for a period of time temporarily. And we're like, this is fantastic. And so we got a label for that. um, And we thought that that would help us improve adoption of AFib surgery. Mm -hmm. But a funny thing happened along the way. It had zero impact on hip hip surgery. Zero. But we found out that thoracic surgeons love to use it because it was reducing their hospital stays. These people had no pain for six to eight weeks after surgery. Hmm. And so anytime they're entering the thoracic cavity. So, we've kind of created this little business for pain management that today is now 6% of our revenue and growing growing and uh, we've got a new product in that area. And so now we're atrial fibrillation and we're really all about that. But we also have this pain management business that we believe is really uniquely positioned in a world in which eventually we'll get, I mean, we'll look to get something around reducing opioid consumption, et cetera. We don't have that label today. But that is the big key to it: is that you can actually reduce narcotics use afterwards, and you can reduce the length of stay.
0: Interesting. Why was there less interest on the Afib side as you thought? What? Because uh, it does sound like a perfect fit. You're right.
4: You know, it was that it, it didn't. We thought the problem was because of pain, mm-hmm. and that people weren't doing the procedure because of pain. But what we learned was that they weren't doing the thoracoscopic procedure more because it's a complicated procedure to do. And it just took more skill set. So it's, it's it's actually a very good product for and approach, but it was also more complicated. And so the pain wasn't what was getting in the way. It was actually the simplicity of the procedure, which is actually one of the reasons we bought um, the Converge trial, because we bought that product in 2015, and that was an approach that went in through um, the belly. And not only didn't have pain, but it was also a lot easier for the surgeon to do
0: interesting so how do you manage a company of this size when you've got you mentioned Medtronic earlier they they were they had a, a potential tech in the space but yours is a company that's focused almost exclusively on a single disease state you have the opportunity I'm sure to expand in other areas but what are the the, the positives of having such a focused niche company in a in a, in a and I mean that in a positive way. And what are the challenges of having a company that is really so focused?
4: And focus to me is what makes makes us great at the end of the day, and it really makes our people good because they can focus on being the best, understanding exactly what's happening in the space. We can begin to see and connect dots that others aren't, because this is what eight hundred people in our business live, breathe about and think about every single day. It's about AFib, it's about the patient that has AFib. And so we get into the into the weeds of understanding the details of that, and that's all we think about. So that focus allows us to do things and take chances like we did on a couple of acquisitions that have really um, come to fruition for us. We can take those risks earlier on as an example on that. or our team in the field, like when we do our training, it's dedicated. Somebody's coming, they know exactly what they're gonna get. It's incredibly focused on improving the way they're gonna care for their patients that focus allows us to know more than they're ever going to know even as a practitioner because this is all we do and this is all we see every single day Mm -hmm. and we're seeing it at multiple different hospitals and so it allows us to bring a knowledge base that is valuable to everybody that we talk to we're not broad based just carrying a big bag and just trying to sell into a hospital we're really focused on that patient that maybe they don't have enough time because even a physician, a surgeon, for example, can be good at mitral valves. They can be good at coronary bypass. They can be good at aortic valves. They've got to have all that skills. And then like, oh, I've got to learn this AFib piece as well. We're there to help them bridge that. And by being that deep, it allows us to kind of add that value to the physicians that serve those patients.
0: And how do you weigh that? You're right. It's great to have that tight of focus on on something. You see things others don't. Uh, But how do you balance that versus perhaps the – the business strategy side of you that that sees strength in in diversification to to make sure all of your eggs aren't in a single basket. Do you look for opportunities? I mean, you did talk about the pain uh, yeah. application, so that that could be one. Are you constantly looking for at least tangential opportunities that that or, or adjacent opportunities that might fit into what you're doing? How do you how do you balance those two? It's a re-
4: it's a really fair and good question. But the markets that we're serving and the, the number of patients that are not being treated today with this disease state is so big and so vast that that would only dilute our focus on it. So oh. when you think about the long-standing, persistent atrial fibrillation space, in, U, in the U.S. alone, there are 8 million patients with atrial fibrillation. 3.6 million of them have longstanding persistent AFib. Wow. We're the only ones with a solution for that. That's a lot of patients. Yeah, And so... And we did 1,500 or so procedures with convergent in that area last year. I mean, from when I look at it, I'm like 1,500 and 3.6 million. It's a long way for us to really begin to think about, like, if I've got to diversify per se. That being said, we've diversified within our portfolio around that patient population. So we not only do the ablation side, we also bring um, left atrial appendage tools. We bought a company that does it percutaneously less invasive. We've got our clip technology. And so we've begun to, to diversify really around that base to make sure that that patient's getting the best care that they could possibly need. And we believe these are multi-billion dollar markets serving millions and millions of patients that we don't have to expand. The biggest thing we look at strategically is we want to be additive to things that are going on out there. So for mm-hmm. example, everything we do adds on to what the like many of the big companies are doing in the atrial fibrillation space. We don't compete against them. We just make their catheters better. And so we're adding to that and their catheters are used in every one of our procedures as an example. And so that's how we kind of strategically think about it. So if we can find tangential things to your point to diversify, her, we might do that, but it's not our primary focus at this point. We feel like we've got a deep and rich portfolio that is not needed to kind of get, you know, too far afield from what we're doing today.
0: Help me understand that a bit then uh, on your products, uh, they're used in conjunction with, with other products.
4: They can be. So, our space, I break it down in how does a patient enter into the healthcare system? Like what, what are they? How, why are they sick, and why are they talking to the physician? We are we kind of fall two, two patient profiles. One, which is the core business that we started with, which is you've got you have corner, you need, have a need for coronary bypass or an AVR or an um, MVR, you, you are a valve procedure, and on top of that, you have a That is a very distinct population that the company was founded upon. That's where we got that first label that I talked about. That's kind of population number one. That population alone isn't big enough to not diversify, Mm -hmm. to to answer your question. In that case, we're not using or adding catheters to it. We're just additive to the cardiac procedure because if you do a cabbage and you have AFib and you don't treat the AFib, You don't live as long. The data is very clear that you do not live as long if you don't treat the AFib at the time that you're actually treating the other cardiovascular event or issue that you've got. And so the additive in that case is that we're adding to the treatment and helping that patient live a much longer life. And that's why in that area, we are a level one guideline within STS and all of the major societies. If you have AFib and you're getting treated for something else, you should get an ablation and get treated. Now patient population two is the one where we're co- combining ourselves with the catheters. One one that. This is a patient that comes in, they've got AFib. That's all they have. They don't have some other disease state. They have atrial fibrillation. And so now it's, well, what type of AFib do they have? And how bad along that continuum are they? We talked about that earlier. And so in that case, our, our products, we know that one product alone does not solve the problem. So, we use our products in conjunction with the catheters, and the catheters do things that our products can't do. They do it from the inside out, and ours do it from the outside in. Mm-hmm. And you combine those two, and you get a much more robust and durable procedure. And that's why we're additive, if that makes sense.
0: That does make sense. Yep. So, you, you had some news recently, and I want to make sure I… I, I, I Got up. You've got the three the three stages of, of AFib, which you can you can recite again. Uh, the FDA recently approved your Epicent system for the treatment of longstanding persistent AFib patients. What does that mean? Were you not treating long standing persistent AFib patients before, or is this another another tool to to help treat those patients?
4: So the Epicent was five ten k cleared, and mm-hmm. it was cleared for cardiac ablation and was being used in in patients. So about fifteen hundred or so procedures were happening every year. Um, for the use of basically cardiac tissue ablation. Now, the trial that we underwent, which was it was about eight years in the making, to kind of from start wow. of the trial to final approval, was it was called the Converge trial, and we brought that trial to fruition. And in the process of working with the FDA, we got this label, and it's a new label that's never been had before, which is for long-standing persistent, because the data from the trial showed that patients with long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation, which means you've had a fib for more than a year. Mm-hmm. And it's about 45% of all AFib patients fall within that bucket or category. Those patients had an improvement of 110% improvement at 18 months. When you follow those patients out 18 months, you saw 110% improvement over the catheter by itself. So ours plus the catheter versus just the catheter showed that kind of improvement. And that's how we got that label. Now it's our chance to kind of really begin to go to market and market it that way. Cause we were never able to kind of, talk about it, that you could reduce the AFib and improve that patient in that particular way. Mm -hmm. And so we've never been able to do that. We've been more reactive up to this point. Now we're able to kind of go build out and actually work with the physicians and others in a much more aggressive way to help them treat this unmet need and these patients that weren't treated before.
0: Gotcha. That's a a very long trial. Wow. Uh, So what was the number again, the number of people who have AFib? Is it 8 million you said?
4: 8 million in the U.S., about 40 million worldwide.
0: And and what percentage of those are you able, do you have products to treat? All of them? Um, We have
4: products that treat, depending on which bucket you're in, but primarily in the longstanding persistent with Converge, Mm -hmm. it's about 45% of that patient population.
0: And your other products? Our other products
4: in the concomitant treat the persistent patients as well. And so, that adds about another couple million patients to that in the United States.
0: So, is there, is there a population within AFib that you're unable to treat and you're currently targeting or moving toward treating?
4: The, per, the paroxysmal patients are ones that we're not on label to treat. Mm-hmm. The catheters are on label to treat that, and they do a great job with it. So, I mean, there's no, I mean, we're a more invasive approach than the catheters. Gotcha. And so, there's trade-offs. And so, there's a continuum of care, and the catheters do a, a really wonderful job of treating it. We're not trying to get into that space we're really trying to make sure that the patients that are in this other bucket get treated. I'll give you I'll give you some numbers that actually can highlight that. Sure. In the, in the US in 2019 there were 180,000 catheter ablations to treat AFib. Of those 180,000, 25,000 were for long-standing persistent patients. Okay. That's 14% yet they represent 45% of the total patient population. And within that 25,000, we only did 1,500. So we have a lot of room for growth within our existing market because we're the only ones with the label to treat that patient population now. And we don't take anything away from the catheter. Again, we're additive to it and we can treat a whole bunch of patients that they had given up on. They'd said, you know what, we're not going to treat. So we're not at this point trying to go after a space it already has really good solutions to them and we're not trying to kind of change that game at this point in time. Our focus is really making sure we can create standards of care where we where we are.
0: And where are these procedures being done? Are they primarily in larger hospitals? Do we do you see ASCs? Treating AFib? Where, where, who are you, where are you selling to? They're definitely being done in hospitals. They're yeah. not going to be done in outpatient
4: centers. Uh, there is a hospital stay component to it. It can be anywhere from two to five days or so, wow. okay. um, depending on the, the procedure and obviously the patient, etc. But uh, they are being done in a hospital. So there's about a thousand or so hospitals that are potential to do this procedure. For example, in our concomitant space, we sell and we are in pretty much every... About 98% of all cardiac surgery centers in the United States, Atricure has a presence because we're the only ones with the label in that in sp- the PMA label in that space as well.
0: How did this is? I feel like I should get a, a sound effect for the COVID question. COVID question coming. How how was uh, how did uh, your business uh, fare during COVID? Was this a procedure that was deemed essential and people continue to have it, or did did uh, people put themselves at risk by not having this procedure done?
4: So, so good question. So it, in different parts, it was a little bit different. So in the cardiac surgery part of our business, we had less of an impact because patients are going in for coronary bypass. They've probably had a heart attack or they've had some other major ailment that they've got to basically treat pretty quickly. Yes, the cardiac surgery got hit hard, but not as hard as the elective um, ablation procedures that were happening on the convergent side, which is what that is. That's only for convergent. And so we were hit harder on that so um, we did get affected last year like everybody else in the april may time frame uh, saw a bounce back in the summer saw some pressure in december january and then we just announced our results recently and we've really seen things begin to come back march was exceptional and so was april for us and so we're really on a great trajectory right now to kind of see our way through um, as these procedures begin to bounce back
0: terrific so where do you you go from here again you're, you're a company with a, an extremely great tight focus on, on a space uh, what do you how do you plan for Atricure's future is it uh, a, is it acquiring more companies is it potentially being acquired obviously anything can happen but how, how do you view the future of this company
4: yeah we're, we're focused on creating a standard of care within the markets that we're in right now there are too few patients being treated today we're talking uh-huh. to millions of patients. Everything we do over the next five years is going to be about creating a standard of care for the treatment of those patients that are not getting treated today. Um, Are there acquisitions that might be able to help us out? There might be, but it's not a proactive measure at this point in time, maybe to get better channel strength and things like that. But we're really focused on helping physicians understand the benefits of the treatment we've got in front of them today and executing on that and Mm -hmm. helping them build those programs.
0: Are your, shifting, are your salespeople in the room when these procedures are happening? Uh, and has that been, uh, I'll, I'll just leave my question there. <laughs> are they in the operating room during this procedure?
4: They are. They are. We are in the operating room for almost all the procedures. Um, primarily because as I was talking before, we're so focused. Yeah. We a lot of value we provide to them during the procedure. Obviously, we're not doing the procedure, but we've seen more procedures than they've ever seen before. So, our counsel is really important. We train our team really well to kind of be in there and be supportive through pretty much every one of the procedures.
0: And has that access been affected at all by COVID restrictions? Fortunately, that is not. We've okay. been
4: uh, we've been really welcomed because we're such a core part of the team and so helpful and valuable. We have not seen that affect. Uh, right up front, you know, for the first couple of weeks when they just went into complete lockdowns, but sure. that came back very quickly.
0: And final question, just about uh, about the money. I, I imagine that reimbursement for this is, is stable. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue against this uh, being something that needs to be paid for.
4: Yeah. Fortunately, the, there's really good reimbursement um, for this today. And so, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of companies, when they're bringing new products or they get new pieces, they've got to kind of go fight for the reimbursement angle to it. Fortunately for this, this is actually a, a well-reimbursed. Everybody wins. The patient wins hospitals can do this without losing money, um, and the physicians have payment as well. So it's a, it's a win-win for everybody involved.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, Mike Carroll, I'm glad you found your way into the uh, medtech industry, and I uh, really appreciate you taking some time to uh, talk about AtroCure.
4: Hey, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate you inviting me in, and I've enjoyed it.
0: All right, Sean Hooley. Great job bringing in the, uh, the young folks. I, I could see our, our numbers popping. So uh, I really love the energy you're bringing, but uh, we may have to bring Chris Newmarker back in again, just to uh, to level things off next week. But uh, great job filling in. And uh, I know you're out there on social media. How can folks find you on Twitter and LinkedIn?
1: So you can find me on LinkedIn at Sean, S-E-A-N, Hooley, W-H-O-O-L-E-Y. Always trying to, to grow that network. So Feel free to, to send a, a LinkedIn request. And then on Twitter, I am at the same name, Sean Hooley, WTWH. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. So feel free to throw me a follow there too.
0: Awesome. And I am also on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. I'm on Twitter at MedTech Tom, And uh, thanks for joining us on this podcast. Uh, please do share it on those social media channels. And if you do, tag myself. Tag Chris Newmarker. He is at Newmarker on Twitter or Chris Newmarker on LinkedIn. And of course, tag Sean Hooley, who he just gave you his information just a few seconds ago. Also, you can uh, get this podcast before almost anyone else does by subscribing. Push the subscribe button on one of your podcast applications Google, Spotify, Amazon, Apple. We got them all, all the biggies. Uh, Just push subscribe and these podcasts will. be sent directly to you pretty much as uh, soon as I publish them. So uh, it's a great and easy and free service. So uh, why not just do that? And uh, that's a wrap. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast waiting for you.
1: Great job, Sean Hooley. Appreciate it. Always happy to join.